That's the end of the commercials. <laughs> if you've got a Bible with you, we'll read Galatians chapter 4, uh, 3 tonight. Galatians chapter 3, um, which doesn't start off in a very promising or encouraging tone, but we'll get through it, okay? Chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So, those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The seed, the scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. 
Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Whoa. What a chapter, eh? Um, chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians are, are mainly personal. Um, Paul has come under attack by false teachers after he left the Galatians. Um, they doubted, first of all, his, his status as an apostle, and then they doubted um, the sufficient contact, uh, content of his gospel. He said it went as far as it did, but not far enough. And uh, so he deals with that really in chapters 1 and 2. It's personal. 3 and 4 are doctrinal. Um, the personal stuff worked out in relation to Peter, as we saw last time. But uh, chapters 3 and 4 are doctrinal. Um, and they, they, they really deal with uh, the issue of being born free and being liberated from the law and being delivered from the imprisonment of the law. Chapters 5 and 6 are practical, as we'll see uh, later on. Verses 1 to 3, Paul is amazed. Dumb finners, the Scottish word, isn't it? Amazed at the Galatian departure that he thinks, he thinks they've been so bewitched that they've behaved stupidly. They'd abandoned a clear and simple gospel and left their experience of the Holy Spirit for law-keeping performance as a substitute. Not very good. And in verse 1, he shows how the gospel in its truth is visible. He says, you foolish Galatians, and he uses a word, <laughs> I know it was, it's, it means brainless, basically. It's a negative of having a mind, having a brain, having rational and thinking powers. He says, you foolish Galatians. And there's a whole lot of ways in which it's translated in different translations. You can have senseless, crazy, idiotic, foolish, stupid. Or the best word I can find is in Professor Lorimer's uh, Scottish version of the New Testament. Have you read it? Professor Lorimer was a, a lecturer in, <coughs> in Greek in St. Andrews University, and he was also an expert in Scot Scots language, and he produced a New Testament in, in broad Scots. Not like that Glasgow gospel and that stuff. This is authentic by a man who knew the Scottish language, and he also knew Greek very intimately. And he says, eh, my pair Glacic Galatians. <laughs> Galatians, it's a wonderful word, isn't it? My pair Glacic Galatians, he says, what's happened to you? Somebody's put the evil eye on you. Somebody's put a hex, a hex on you. Who has bewitched you? And uh, it's funny that because uh, the eyes, it's the eyes, Ducky, it's the eyes. You ever, you sometimes meet folk that can't look you straight in the face. <laughs> um, we once had a minister who shall remain nameless, and he used to preach through that window up there. 
you know. He never looked, he couldn't bear to look at the congregation. He would lose his train of thought. So he preached through that window. We used to all speculate if we all slunk out quietly, would he notice that we were missing? But some people, they, they rivet you with their eyes, you know. And we were told that we were taught a trick when we were being trained to preach. One was that you've not to be worried about losing your track by looking at the folk. If you look at the top of their heads, they don't know that you're not looking at their, their eyes. <laughs> and you can get away with it that way. But in the ancient times, they were better, it's very up to date as well. They used to put on eye shadow. Uh, <laughs> eye shadow to guard their eyes against the evil eye and lipstick to guard their mouths, you know. So when you see these ancient uh, paintings and so on, quite often the ladies in the paintings are very well made up. It's to stop the evil eye. Uh, somebody's put the evil eye on you. He says, somebody's, has somebody put a hex on you? And he says, it's especially bad because the gospel I preached was very clearly portrayed as crucified. It was written up, is probably how I would translate it. It was written up before your very eyes, this gospel. And Christ was portrayed as crucified in this gospel. So the truth of the gospel is visible. Um, it was visible. It was written up before them. Um, and it was as if you could see it on a, on a billboard, either painted on by an artist or set up by a bill poster. In the, old, in the ancient world, they didn't have the, the lo what's the local paper in Airdrie? The Airdrie Advertiser. Well, it wasn't that you could put notices in the local paper. What you did was, if you were having trouble and you wanted any notices respect, respecting your family, you made a notice up and took it down to the marketplace, to the center of town, and especially fathers with uh, wayward sons. They used to put up a notice, I am no longer liable for so-and-so's debts, and stuff like that. It was placarded so the whole public would know all about it. And he says, the Lord Jesus Christ has been placarded before you. Um, <clears throat> And it's as if God has placarded the fact that he's dealt with our debts in Christ and he's presented as crucified. And it was a public thing. Crucifixions were public. People went along. It was, it was a, a kind of entertainment, would you believe it? Yeah, to go and watch a crucifixion and the sufferings of the victims. In France, during the period of the the terror. There were a group of ladies that used to go and take their knitting along. You know, one in, over, through, and off. <laughs> the, the guillotine would work. It was public. And they would just sit there knitting. Imagine that. It was public. And, and Paul is saying here, this, this message, it was so clear, it was so visible, it was so obvious that the Lord Jesus Christ died for your sins in this wonderful way of dying on a cross in a public place to declare God's, God the Father's love to his fallen human race. And by through coming to Christ in uh, repentance and faith, 
the Holy Spirit would come into their life because uh, when we belong to Christ, truly, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And so, it's not only visible, but the message of the gospel was viable. They had experienced the power of God surging through them. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your targets in, in the flesh, he says. You've known the reality of Jesus. How did you go back to all this superstitious mumbo-jumbo that you were involved in as pagans in Galatia before the gospel came? Was it really for nothing that Christ died? Is it really for nothing that the Holy Spirit was offered to you? Verse 5, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law? Or because you believe what you heard? And so the experience of God came <coughs> with confirmatory signs and wonders among the people. Now, we mentioned the miracles in the Bible. The miracles don't occur uniformly in the Bible. You know that. They occur in clusters at special periods of time, round about the time of the Exodus, round about the time of Elijah and Elisha, round about the time of Moses, round about the time of um, Jesus and the apostles and Acts. Miracles appear in clusters to confirm and back up the truth that God wants to emphasize in the message that he's giving. And so he says to them, look, God backed it up he backed it up with miracles among you because you observe the law. I'm not denying that there are miracles happen today. Miracles happen all the time. But um, in the matter of healing miracles, God can heal anyone, but he doesn't heal everyone. We know that. That's the truth of the New Testament. And so he says to them, this experience of God's divine power is not only visible in the gospel it's also viable. The reality of Jesus has been something among you. And he says, e.g., verse 6, um, here's the example. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The actual, the Greek text of the, the book of Genesis, it was reckoned to him with a view to righteousness. It was, it was anticipated. It was Old Testament. It was prior to the gospel. But it was the same quality that God would reward as folk trusted in him down through the years. And so he says to them, take this example of Abraham, the man of faith, verses 6 to 9. He believed God. And uh, elsewhere, he talks about this wonderful faith that we have is a gift from God in Ephesians, doesn't it? By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so we can experience the wonder of the kind of quality of faith that Abraham had. What kind, what kind of quality was, was it that Abraham had? Well, <clears throat> It was the quality of faith that believed that God could bring life from the dead. Because in, in at least two instances in his life, Abraham proved this. God told him that Sarah would have a child. And in Glasgow would say, I, you wish. Look at this old lady and this old gentleman. Um, I, you wish. 
But God said, no, it's going to happen. And Abram believed God that out of the deadness of Sarah's womb, God could produce a son who would be the heir of the promises. <clears throat> um, and then later on in Genesis 22, when, when he, he goes to take Isaac, his son, up the mountain, this son comes, we ha-ha. Yitzchak is his name in Hebrew, it means ha-ha, um, because his, his mummy laughed at the idea of him coming. And we ha-ha was born. And if you do your sums, you reckon that in Genesis 22, we ha-ha was at least 20 year old. I think he probably neither 25. He was a fully grown man. He could have shown the old man a clean pair of heels if he'd wanted to, but he obeyed his father. And he took him up the mountain. And he was willing to plunge the sacrificial knife into the heart of his son in obedience to God when God restrained him and produced a substitute sacrifice, which once again is a picture into the New Testament. A lot of folk argue now for an Isaac Christology in our understanding of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God dying for our sins. And so <clears throat> he says, this Abraham was a man of faith, same kind of faith as we have. We believe in a God who brings life from the dead, that Jesus Christ our Lord rose from the dead the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so we're freed from this curse. Verses 10 to 14 there deal with the curse of the law. No one is justified before God by the law. Um, there are different kinds of law in the Bible. In the Old Testament, three kinds of law. There's a civil law, which had to do with the life of Israel in the land of of the, the Canaanites. Canaanites. Um, and that, that's good law. There's good lot of sensible stuff in there. Good, good public health law in there in uh, the, the, the books of the, the, the Pentateuch, um, the, f the first five books of the Old Testament. Civil law is good, but it's not incumbent on, on Christians nowadays because we don't live in Israel. The, the church is now a worldwide phenomenon. <laughs> And then the second kind of law in the Old Testament is um, <coughs> ceremonial law, regulating the approach to God in worship and sacrifice. And for Christians too, that's no longer uh, incumbent on us. We don't have to sacrifice beasts and shed blood and have sacrificial altars and fires and all that kind of stuff because you read in Hebrews of how the Lord Jesus Christ has surpassed all the types and shadows of the Old Testament law in uh, relation to sacrifice. The third kind of law in the Old Testament is moral law, which you'll get in the Ten Commandments, and you have it reiterated in the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's a school of thought to which I tend to adhere, um, <clears throat> is that God, through his Holy Spirit, makes us able to please God by the indwelling Spirit, enabling us to fulfill the requirements of the law, not as a way of salvation, but as a demonstration of grace in our lives. And so you get this thing about the curse of the law, and then he says, verse 13, uh, the, the contrast, verse 12, the man who does these things will live by them, and Paul lived that kind of life when he was a Pharisee. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law um, by becoming a curse for us. 
and dying on a cross. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. There's a text in Deuteronomy about that. He redeemed us for a transfer of blessing from Abraham to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that we can receive the promise of the Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? Great. And then he goes on to use an illustration from everyday life about witnesses. And incidentally, when you look at this passage, it kind of underscores the authority of Scripture in verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning the one person. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, <coughs> it was a prophetic writing about Messiah who was to come. And he argues for a singular against a plural. You know, that's how literally Paul takes the Old Testament text. It suits his argument here, certainly. But it's a good thing to do, to take the, the text of the Bible seriously and reckon that it's inspired and authoritative for us. So he says, it doesn't say seeds, it says seed, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise is coming through Messiah, through the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Um, the law does not set aside the covenant, he says. The, the law was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. And uh, when you think about it, we don't need encouragement to break the law. You used to travel in railway compartments, no smoking, and folk used to smoke like that against the notice just to defy it, because we are by nature and practice and uh, inclination rebels against God. Our human nature want, makes us want to break God's law naturally. And he says, no, 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 no. He says, uh, uh, the, the, the transgressions were added until the seed would, had come. And the seed, he transfers to talk about the seed and the mediator. And, and elsewhere he says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so he, he wraps up the whole action of God and the whole sacrifice of Christ. And he says, the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. I was talking to a Berlini prisoner this, this afternoon, and he was, for a time, what you call a remand prisoner. You know, this trial hadn't taken place, and the sentence hadn't been pronounced. He was a remand prisoner. And that's the kind of imagery of this. We are all recidivist sinners like recidivist criminals. And uh, we're remand prisoners waiting until God delivers us by faith. He said, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Like the Greek slave, usually the rich Roman households had a Greek slave because he was an intelligent guy. And he would look after the education of the children. They did their homework and all that kind of stuff. And he would, he would walk to school carrying their stuff and accompanying the child to school. He says, this is what the law was like. 
It was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The target, the aim, the final uh, act was that we would come to Christ and trust in him. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. And so he says, we're free. We're free, free from the law, oh happy condition. Uh, the old ones, uh, Sankey hymn said, well, Christians are free to keep the law by the strength of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, 3, I think it says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And so we, we come into a vivid visual presentation of what God has for us. I have a friend, his name is Robert Johnson. He was my, my roommate in my final year in college. And Robert was a buyer for an Italian, not an Italian, where did I get Italian from? An Irish linen firm in London. And one Friday night, he went to a Bible class in Westminster Chapel, conducted by a man called uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And he was dealing with Romans that, that Friday night when Bob went in. And he was dealing with Romans chapter 3, verse 25, whom God set out um, to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. And Bob says, I could see it in the ceiling, George. He says, it was like visual stuff. And that night I could do nothing else but trust Christ. And I became a Christian that night. He went to see Dr. Lloyd-Jones, and Dr. Lloyd-Jones did a sort of dance with him. <laughs> he was that pleased that Bob had trusted the Lord. Uh, and then, to give you an, an indication of what Lloyd-Jones was like, um, Bob hadn't an O-level to his name, and he did O-levels, and he did GCE A-levels, and he went to London Bible College and studied for four years. <clears throat> and in the final term of his final year, he went back to that Friday Bible class, and Martin Lloyd-Jones was in Romans chapter 8. <laughs> It'd take them six years to go from chapter 3 to chapter 8, and he said, I still live on that wonderful night when I saw that the Lord Jesus Christ was set forth to be a means of offering mercy to me, and I became a Christian. And so, we're no longer slaves, we're sons, and that's the last bit of the chapter. We are all, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And we live in a world of alienation. You know, we were on holiday this week. We went in the bus. You know, we traveled with Caledonian travel. And uh, there was a guy behind me, in the seat, uh, behind us in the seat in the bus. And if you looked at him, he had long blonde hair down to here. And when you heard him speaking, he had a nice baritone voice. And I said to Jean, with, you know how I'm past remarkable. <laughs> I said, Jean, he's wearing a bra. <laughs> and when he got up, he'd on a skirt and he had a, a blouse. And the big thing was when we stopped at the, the coach car park for a toilet break, 
Jane was watching it, he was heading straight for the ladies' toilet. <laughs> and, and I felt so sorry for that guy. He got tormented by the old women the whole journey there and the whole journey back. I never even got a decent conversation with him. But he was, he was alienated. He was, he was alone, really. He didn't seem to have any friends. Um, and what is Paul saying here? He says, in a world of alienation, here's the message. You belong. That's the message. You belong. Verse 26. The, you belong to God. Sons and daughters of the living God. This refers to the sonship you bear. Now God is our father as Christians in two different ways. He's our father, first of all, as our creator. He gives us life. He renews the gift of breath to each one of us while we're sitting here or standing here. Um, but he also belongs to us in a special way as Christians. We learn, we've learned to look up into his face and call him Abba, Father, because as many as received him, the Lord Jesus Christ gave the authority to become the sons of God, even to those who believed in his name. And so that is wonderful. This is the direct gift of God's image into our hearts through trusting in Christ. And Abba, of course, is a special word of intimacy. It was daddy in ancient uh, Judaism in the time of our Lord. Um, Abba, you don't even need teeth to say it, somebody pointed out. Abba, it's what a wee child used as a name for, for daddy. Um, you belong to God. This is the sonship you bear, that God is our father in the special sense that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ through salvation. And then he tells you, um, verse 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, now that's a loaded phrase, I've got, we're not, I don't have time to discuss that tonight, whether it's water baptism or spirit baptism, but as, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ, you've put them on like a garment, which is wonderful. You've put them on like a garment. You belong to God. This is the sonship you bear. You belong to Christ. This is the clothing you wear. You've put on Christ like a garment. In the Old Testament, as a, one of the heroes of the book of Judges, which I prefer to call the champions, is a man called Gideon. And the Holy Spirit raised up people as champions in a very difficult period of Israel's history. And it says the Holy Spirit put on Gideon. And the verb is used of putting on clothing. The, the Holy Spirit dressed himself with Gideon. That's the idea. Wonderful. He is the clothing you wear. And it tells in Colossians 3.10 that you've put on the new self. The, you've put on the new self. When you get clothing, um, there's three questions you ask. Well, one is, can I afford that? That's the first thing. Can I afford that? Um, and in this case, we can't afford it. God gives us it. 
He takes away the filthy rags of our self-righteousness and puts the spotless robe of Christ on us so that we belong to him as somebody wears clothing. Can I afford it? The second one th question we ask is, well, one is, can I afford it? Two, does it fit me? Does it fit you? You know, and when you think of the goodness of God in your life, what's happened is you've learned that this fits you. This fits you. Um, and it's wonderful to think that the Holy Spirit in our lives makes the Lord Jesus an increasing reality to us so that we change. There's a modern chorus. I don't like the end of it, but I like the beginning of it. Um, Jesus, you are changing me, you know. Jesus, you are changing me into the same likeness, wearing him as a garment. Um, and the third thing is, this is a lady's question principally, does it suit me? Does it suit me? You know, when you buy something, say, does it suit me? Um, my old man, he, he, he shopped at the, the 30 shilling tailor on Stowe Street, Glasgow, and he used to say about his suits, it fits where it touches. <laughs> it fits where it touches. But it fits you. Paul says to the Roman Christians, he says that uh, you, 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 you should really, where is it? Um, in Romans, uh, he talks about it. He says, um, chapter 12 of Romans. I'm getting there. My mind's slowing up, but I'm not the man I was. Um, offer your bodies to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. It fits you. It suits you. And you learn to say God's will is good. God's will is pleasing. God's will is perfect. God's will is perfect. And then you, you add the, the strong bit at the end. God's will is good for me. Hmm? God's will is pleasing for me. And God's will is perfect for me. I was talking to a guy today, and this couple, they're a lovely couple. They don't have a lot of money, but uh, their circumstances changed, and they had a spare house. They moved into, when they got married, they still had a house that they kept on. And they gave this house on the understanding that the folk they were giving it to would pay them for the gas and electricity and council tax, you know. But they never get anything from them. And they were in a, a bit of a state, they had no money left. And they had all, all these bills coming in. And this guy had cost them eight and a half thousand pounds living in that house free of rent and all that other stuff. And they, they just prayed to the Lord about it. And then they got a bank statement. And the bank statement said, there was eight and a half thousand pounds in their bank account that they couldn't explain. <laughs> so they phoned up 
and went in to see the bank about it. And they said, well, some years ago, you had a PPI, whatever that is. And we gave you £6,000 in, in the PPI. And then we reassessed your situation and realised that we had really grossly underpaid you, your PPI. So that 8500 is what we're paying to you uh, in compensation for not paying you that at the beginning. They had put out £8,500 believing they were helping a servant of Christ and the Lord gave them it back through the bank account. I thought that was wonderful. The will of God is good for me. The will of God is pleasing for me. The will of God is perfect for me. You belong to God. You belong to Christ. <clears throat> um, you, you're sons of God. That's the sonship you bear. You've clothed yourselves with Christ. That's the clothing you wear. Thirdly, you belong to each other. Isn't that good? Very good. Um, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the motto of the Keswick Convention, I think, isn't it? All one in Christ Jesus. The freedom you share is the freedom to belong to one another. When Queen Juliana of the Netherlands was a child, she was traveling in the royal carriage with her mummy, and all the crowds were cheering and waving and shouting and carrying on, and she said, Mummy, <laughs> well, in, in Dutch, of course, you know, <laughs> do all these people belong to me? <laughs> and she said, no, dear. You belong to them. And that's the great thing in the Christian family. We belong to each other. You can look around. Look at the dolly mixtures you've got in this congregation. <laughs> or any congregation. You know, we used to have a lady in Kirk and Tillich, and every time I looked at her, it was a blessing. Her name was Ruby. I called her the Iron Lady because she took in ironing. And she went to people's houses and ironed their clothes. And uh, she'd lived for 18 years as an alcoholic and three times tried to commit suicide unsuccessfully. And she flung herself under a bus in Kirtan Tiller. And she was in hospital in Brunton, Scott, visited her. And Liam Golliker visited her. And she came to know the Lord. Um, and her daughter was crying the first Christmas after she was converted because the daughter came to visit and she said, why are you crying, dear? She said, I'm just thinking about the difference, Mum. Last time I came here, you were sitting in a chair with hardly any clothes, a blanket around you, no fire, and nothing in the larder. And look at the house now. And look at all the things around you. And uh, that was Ruby. And every time I looked at Ruby, I thought, praise the Lord for Ruby. Ruby belongs to us. We belong to Ruby. You belong to each other. We live in a divided world, don't we? The haves and the have-nots and the different areas of the country. And they're still getting us all classified. I'm not quite sure what working class means, but I think that's where I came from. Uh, but we're all divided up. 
uh, Gentiles, Jews, slaves, free men. It was like that in the, in the, in the world of the, of the New Testament. About, they reckon maybe about a quarter of the New Testament church were slaves in New Testament times. And God is colorblind. The haves and the have-nots, the hootsies and the tootsies, the kamba and the kukuyu, all divided, but all one in Christ Jesus when you see them together, worshipping the Lord and serving him and sharing together. Like the guy I met in Kenya. Um, what was his name? <laughs> Japheth. Japheth. I said, tell me your story. He says, I was a barefoot herds boy, and I couldn't read or write. And I bought a letter of the alphabet from my fellow herds boys at 20 shillings a letter. And when I learned the whole alphabet, I felt brave enough to go to church. And he went to church and trusted the Lord, and a man took him under his wing and financed his schooling. And he was very clever at school and wonderful uh, playing the guitar. And he's one of the top gospel singers in Kenya. And he owns a string of music shops. And he is in charge of the music ministry in the Jericho Church, Nairobi, which has about 3,500 every Sunday morning. Um, and he looks after the choirs. He supplies all the musical instruments. <laughs> He's an amazing guy. And when you look at him, beautiful suit, beautiful tie and cufflinks and highly polished shoes. And absolutely, you think, businessman. And he says, barefoot herd boy <laughs> that Jesus took in hand. And now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Not <clears throat> for the years of time alone but for eternity. You belong to God, the sonship you bear. You belong to Christ, the clothing you wear. You belong to each other, the freedom you share within the family of God. And then, verse 29, you belong to history. Oh, um, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, picking up what I said earlier. Abraham's seed. These are the people you are. People of faith. People who believe in a God who raised um, life out of Sarah's womb. A God who preserved Isaac in Genesis 22. And we march in step with Abraham. Read Romans 4 and Hebrews 11. We march in step with Abraham. It's a military word. You know, but in step with Abraham. And so the glorious truth of chapter 3, we have to summarize it in a sentence, is we come home to God and to common spiritual sense when we come to know Christ and we put on Christ and we live together in him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us in this wonderful book of Galatians. We thank you for the way in which Paul is able to set out what it means to be born free into the family of God and the joy that follows. Help us to live 
and, and bask in the light of our fellowship together and of all that the Lord has brought us this week in all that we do. For Jesus' sake, amen.